When you think about an exchange, what comes to your mind? Very simply, you can say an exchange is a swap. You give something for, for something else. You hand out something for something else. In some parts of our country right now, they're having these swaps where you can bring your gun in and get money for it. Swap your gun for money. I don't think in Louisiana that will be super popular, but uh, it is in certain parts of the country. If you ever watch the news or you watch shows, you will see occasionally a person who may be guilty of a crime will swap what they know for freedom. They tell the prosecutor, uh, the, the legal team, the justice team uh, that can help them convict someone else or solve some other crime. So they swap their information for the freedom that the state can give them. Sometimes exchanges are absolutely fair. Sometimes they're lopsided. If I'm going to be in a lopsided exchange, I hope I get the better of that, don't you? Well, this morning, we're going to be primarily in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It's our memory verse for this month, but I only God knows whether any of you memorize this or not. So I want to look at it on the screen as we dive into it this morning. Say this with me. Put it on the screens because we don't know if we know it or not. For our sake, read this with me. Y'all act like y'all are eating spinach. I mean, goodness. I want to tell you, this verse right here is packed to the gills with depth and, and, and some things, an exchange that is unbelievable. We're going to try to understand this morning. But let's begin with this because this is where the premise begins. We are all sinners. Did you know that? We are all sinners. Romans 3.23, it says, For all women have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all the men said... Amen. It doesn't say that, though, does it? I, I, now, I always kind of make a joke out of it because I, I read a lot. My job is reading a lot of Bible stuff and theology and how some, some strange theologians will try to take the word all and make it mean something. It means all. We've all, all, all sinned, right? Would you agree? Let's walk through a litany. This is rhetorical, so please don't raise your hand at anything I'm fixing to say. Don't point at anybody, but just see if any of this applies to you. You ever lied? What about adultery? I'm not looking. Don't raise your hands. Adultery is a married person having sex with someone they're not married to. And sex is not defined the way Washington, D.C. does. It's simply being intercourse. When you're inappropriate with someone physically, that's sexual sin. Fornication. Fornication is when you're not married and you're sexually active. Some of you have never done these things, and you're feeling a little self-righteous. You ever lusted? None of you have ever done that. Let me explain it. Lusting is not doing it. It's just wanting to do it. It's looking at it, and Jesus said, that's sin. Do you know that? Murder? Abortion? Slander people? You Gossip? Here's a good one. Some of you are innocent of everything I've just said, but you love to judge people who do those things. Isn't that funny? And I just nailed you because if you're sitting in judgment of other people, that is S what? S I N. You arrogant? Snooty? Prideful? 
Every bit of that is just sin. Idolatry. You know what idolatry is? It's not wor- just worshiping a, a, a golden calf. It's putting anything above God. You know, everybody in this room has done that this last week, haven't we? We have. We're sinners. We've done this before, but it's always fun. Please play along with me. This is just fun. Take your pointing finger like this. I know you were told in school not to point. Come on, y'all, y'all have, let's have some fun. Okay, but preachers, I didn't do well in school, so I'm giving you permission to do this. I want you to look to the person to your left. And I want you to point at them, and I want you to say, you're a sinner. <laughs> Greg, do it. No. You're, well, to the right. Now to the right. This is fun. You're a sinner. <laughs> All right, now look back at me. Keep your finger here. Now, put the finger on your chest and say this. I am, say it, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. You see, we're, aren't we in good company? Everybody is just as, we're, we're all sinners. Here's the really bad thing, though. The payment for sin is death. Did you know that? Uh-oh. We were having fun, but now we're not. The payment for sin is death. Is that on the screens? Do we have that on the screens? Romans 6.23, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, we're going to look just the first part of that right now, the wages of sin is death. What is a wage? A wage is something you're supposed to earn. A gift is something that's given freely. Like if you give someone a birthday gift or a Christmas gift, that's supposed to be Non, no strings attached, just out of the goodness of your heart, right? I give you a gift because I'm gracious, because I love you, because I care about you. A wage is something you earn. Now, listen, a lot of people go to work and don't earn it, but you're supposed to go to work and work. Did you know that? Isn't that a novel idea? You're supposed to work. And when you go to work and you actually work and you get a paycheck at the end of the week, that is called a wage. That's not a gift. When I get my paycheck, I'm very appreciative of it, but I have earned that. That is a wage. And and God says this, listen, I'm going to offer you a gift in a minute that's absolutely wonderful, but here's what sin has earned you and me. It has earned us death. What does that mean? Okay, for for a Christian to, to, to get off track... And to, to bend off and go away, you shouldn't go. Here's what the wages of sin is death means for you. You can lose your marriage. You can lose your joy. You can lose your happiness. You can lose your effectiveness. You can lose your witness. Genesis chapter 3, it tells us death, physical death, entered the world because of sin. But here, listen. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may be a Baptist, a Catholic, a Methodist. You may be a non-denom. You may be baptized, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a minister. But if you don't know Christ personally, the Bible says ultimately if you don't remedy that, and you can remedy that because God's made it possible, that the wages of your sin eventually will be eternal death, separation from God. That's serious business, isn't it? But here's where the great news comes in this morning. Jesus was willing to pay the price for your sins. Jesus was willing to pay the price for your sins. Folks, this verse is, uh, you know, it's 10 miles deep. It is so profound. It's beyond uh, beyond a simple sermon, but we're going to try to understand it a little bit. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Jamie, leave that on the screen. Let's look at that first phrase, for our sake. See, this starts with you and me. This is what's so cool. God loves you so much, even though he knows you're a sinner and he knows you're broken, just like he knows I'm a sinner and he knows I'm broken, that, that everything we're fixing to say, see happened for our sake. This is not theological uh, talk. This is not just a premise or a philosophy. This happened for you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who is he there? It's God the Father. And him is Jesus. Now, folks, Jesus didn't go to the cross kicking and screaming. Jesus said, no, no one kills me. I laid down my own life. Jesus went to the cross. God the Father and God the Son decided that God the Son, Jesus, would be the sacrifice. It says, him who knew no sin. The word sin there means Again, missing the mark. It means to miss the mark with God. And, and to, to know, that word new means to know experientially. In fact, it's used in the Bible to talk about knowing someone sexually, to know someone intimately. And here's what it says in the Bible, verifies this. Jesus lived on this earth as man and as God. You can never fully understand that. But he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. Jesus did not experience or do sin. But it says, the one who had never sinned, God made him to be sin. God didn't make him a sinner. Very important, didn't make him a sinner. It's not simply saying that he made him the sacrifice for sin. That's part of it. But he's saying that God made him to be sin. That he placed your sins, my sins, the guilt and the burden and the responsibility of our sins on Jesus. And it goes on, so that in Him, that's the key, in Him, you can't do this on your own. It's not going to just happen. You're going to have to make a choice. But in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. If you're taking notes, the word righteousness is a great biblical word. It means the justice of God. It's a word we get from the idea of being justified, which biblically was a legal term to be made right with someone. In other words, that when we come to Christ, he takes our junk off us. He puts his righteousness on you and me. He puts his holiness, his purity, and he makes us legally in a right standing with God. Listen, you could have walked in this room this morning condemned in the eyes of God for your unbelief, but you can leave legally in a right relationship with God. It's God's righteousness that he brings on us. See, here's the exchange. God says, if you will bring your junk, your sin, your, your filth, your lies, your dishonesty, your half-hearted commitments, if you will bring it to me, I will exchange your sin, Jesus says, for my righteousness, my holiness, my forgiveness, my better life, my second chance, my 50th chance, and for eternal life. That's a pretty good exchange for you and me, isn't it? That's a wonderful exchange. If you're taking notes, I want to give you four fancy theological words. They are important. When you talk about Jesus' death, one word you might hear is the word impute. I-M-P-U-T-E. What does that mean? It means to give more than just giving something, it, it's giving, in this case, God taking his righteousness and putting it on us, and God taking our sinfulness and putting it on Jesus. To impute is to take something and put it on someone else. 
His righteousness on us, our sin on Him. The other, another word is vicarious. Have you ever heard that Jesus' death was a vicarious death? What that simply means is, is Jesus was our substitute. Where you and I were supposed to die for our sins, Jesus became vicariously the one to die for us. He became our substitute. You're going to die for your sins, and Jesus steps in line and says, I will die for him. That's the substitutionary death Jesus Christ took for us. The third word is the word propitiation. It's a big word. We'll see it in a moment in the verse. It means to make favorable or to appease. God hates sin. God loves sinners. God hates sin. And what Jesus is going to do, we're going to see in a moment, is he's going to do everything. He's going to do everything to appease the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. And the last word is the word atonement. And atone, to atone for something means to satisfy It means to make reparations or to reconcile. See, what Jesus was willing to do was he was was willing in your place and my place to atone, to make the reparations for our sin that we could never make so we could be favorable to God. How does this happen? How, How does this happen? Let me tell you, Jesus Christ had to pay the price for our sins. I want, to, I want to share with you three steps of this process. The first was the flogging. You might call it the scourging or the whipping of Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 15, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, who is terrible, a murderer, and, had, and having scourged Jesus, he had him delivered to be crucified. Now, you, know, you notice there, it doesn't give much verbiage. It just says they had him flogged and released. Primarily because they knew what that meant. They, they knew how terrible it was. They didn't have to explain it much. What did it mean to be scourged? It, it was absolutely horrible. The Romans called it the halfway death. In other words, it wasn't just a punishment. It, it was either to kill you or to beat you that if you did survive and you weren't going to be crucified, you would never be the same. What they would have done and what they did to Jesus, they would have taken him in a public place, keep that in mind, and, and Stripped him at least to his waist. They would have tied him to a pole where his back was very exposed and where he couldn't have moved hardly any. So he certainly couldn't have protected himself. Two Roman soldiers who were called lictors would then begin this process. These guys were very experienced. It's hard for us to imagine, but they may have crucified throughout the Roman Empire 10 people a week. They may have flogged five people a week. I mean, this was their job. So they were very good at it. They would have gotten probably a whip with a handle with, with leather straps coming out of it. They would tie pieces of sharpened bone or metal into it. They would put lead on it to, to, to weight it to make it heavy. Again, it's in a very public place. And then they would begin to beat on the victim. The Jewish people had a policy that you could never, the Old Testament law... You could only have 40 lashes, and they would say 40 minus 1, 39. The Romans didn't have any, any such rule. And again, they, they, they oftentimes people died from this. One book I was reading this spring said that it's very possible the Roman soldiers here were not Italians. They may have been guys who had been drafted or inscripted from Syria or Samaria and who hated Jewish people. So this would have been a really fun thing for them to do. When they began beating on the victim... Skin starts getting ripped. 
Muscles start being exposed. Blood vessels start being exposed. You can imagine the bloody mess they were. Sometimes bone would be exposed. We're going to show a short clip from The Passion. It's not too, too brutal, but if you've got somebody with you that you don't want to see them cover their little eyes or your big eyes or whatever, why are we doing this? Well, because it's real. Because it's real. And I want you to see what Jesus went through for you and me. Why did he do that? Well, it was for, for those bad people, right? No, it was for you. And that was for me. You see, there's got to be a penalty for sin. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die, and the penalty for sin is going to be eternity in hell, but that's not what God wants. This, the sad thing is, is that wasn't even close to the end of the story. Next, after that, they take Jesus amongst a bunch of Roman soldiers. They spit on him. They beat him. They stick a crown of uh, thorns on his head, probably three-inch uh, thorns, three to four inches on his head. They beat him, put a purple robe on him, and make fun of him. And then they take him out, and they crucify him. Again, in Mark chapter 15, it's so, uh, it's so brief what it says in verse 25. And it was the third hour when they had crucified him. Why was it so, so almost vague? Well, again, it's because these people knew very well what that meant. After Jesus had been flogged, after he'd been beaten, this was the second round of beatings, by the way, the victim had to carry the, the, probably the cross beam, not the whole cross, to the place of execution. May have been about 700 feet. That's about two football fields from where the, the flogging or Jesus had been tried was. Jesus was so weak he couldn't carry it. They had to get a man named Simon from Cyrene to help carry that cross for him. Again, these soldiers who did this may have already done this seven or eight times this week. It was old school for them. They were experts in what they did. So they would have got Jesus there. His back would have been shredded. And they would have laid him down on the long beam of the cross. And you imagine how that would have felt. Then they would have put the beams together and they would have begun to nail Jesus. And even in his weakened state, you can imagine it would take a, several people to hold you down some scholars believe they put the nail right about here. We would call that the wrist, but in Jesus' day, they considered that part of the hand. Four or five-inch wrought iron nail. Guys were experts. They could do this without breaking a bone. By the way, the Scriptures predicted Jesus would not have a bone broken, and he didn't. And in one or two pops with a hammer, they would have driven that through Jesus and nailed his hand to that board. Years ago, I asked Dr. Mark Blackwater about this because I'd read that it would hit the median nerve at that particular place. I said, Mark, what would it be like to hit the median nerve? And he said it would have been absolutely horrible. Then they did it to the second hand. Then they took his feet, and they, they very well might have put his feet together and used one five- to seven-inch nail and driven it through both heels. Again, they were very good at this. Didn't break a bone. 
And can you imagine someone putting your feet together and taking a nail and, and a hammer and and tacking you to a board? The place this was where it was, we call it Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. I want you to see a picture, obviously a modern-day picture. Now, this is about 100 years old. You can see it looks like a skull there. That's why it's called the place of the skull. There's two places in Jerusalem where they they say were possible sites of the crucifixion. Either one of them are pretty good uh, potential places. I like this place because it looks like a skull. They also said it was called the place of the skull because there were skulls laying around. This is where they executed people. And then when they got Jesus tacked to the cross, then they set the cross in place. And you can imagine what that would have been like. They said oftentimes that, that the victim would have an elbow, both elbows, a shoulder, or both shoulders separated when the cross was set in the ground. Have any of you ever separated a shoulder? I've seen it happen in football, and I'm telling you, it's horrible we think of the cross, too, as being way up in the air, but the cross, probably Jesus' feet may have been this far from the ground because they didn't want it up high to have to deal with it. It was much easier for the soldiers. But being low to the ground, you're, you're completely vulnerable to passerbyers or wild dogs, and it's absolutely horrible. I want you to see a video, just a quick video, from the Passion about the crucifixion. kind of moves from theory or theology or philosophy to reality when you see that. Well, did this happen in a dungeon? No, this happened in a very public place. And both of the possible sites where the, we say it may have happened are, are right outside of Jerusalem or outside the city gate where it would have had to happen. There was also a major road that ran through here. Jerusalem is a town of about 35,000 normally, but this is Passover, the major Jewish holiday. So there may have been as many as 150,000 Jewish people and people in that area. The place where he was crucified was so public that Pilate, kind of just to tick off the Jewish people, put king of the Jews in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic above him. How did Jesus die? Scholars think it was probably from multifactorial causes. In other words, it may have been several causes. One of them was hypovolemic shock. That's just massive loss of blood. Exhaustion asphyxiation, where just at some point the victim gives out from having to try to pull themselves up to breathe. Our acute heart failure. We don't know exactly how he died, but we know this, that when the Romans put you on a cross, you died and Jesus Christ died. Here's a great question. Why did he have to go through all that? Why couldn't they just have hanged him? Why couldn't, why couldn't they shot an arrow you know, at him or whatever? Why did he have to go through all that? A great scholar named A.T. Robertson, who was a great New Testament scholar 100 years ago, he said, when you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, it doesn't say Jesus became a sinner because he didn't. But it doesn't say he was just a sin offering. It said he became sin. 
And, and that every sin that had ever been committed, everything you and I have done that's rotten, that's wrong, that's terrible, it was placed on Jesus. That when he, when he was being flogged, when he was being killed, all the sins of all time were being dumped on him. And he's, he's paying the burden and the responsibility and the price for that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That word all means for everyone. In 1 John 2, 2, our little word uh, propitiation, now, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Listen, you're a sinner, and you needed someone to die for you. And I did too. But he didn't die just for us. He died for the sins of the world. And that, that wonderful, long propitiation, it means the wrath of the world's sin was absorbed and satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. Getting personal. Your account, if you think of it like a banking account, you got a lot of sin in your account. You agree? Some of you are overdrawn, Right? Jesus' account, account is perfect righteousness and holiness. And Jesus says, if you will let me, I will take your account and I will swap it with mine. I will solve your account for you and give you mine. That is an unbelievable exchange. So here's the question for this hour. Will you accept this exchange today? You have to. In verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, not accidentally, but on purpose, if you get in Christ, we can become the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. Listen, God has done everything to prove to you he loves you. He's done everything to pay the price for your sins. If you're a Christian, listen to me. Many of us are Christians and we are living so half-heartedly. We live in idolatry. We put everything above God. Come back to what Jesus has done for you. We fuss and fight over the silliest things. Jesus Christ died for you. Live up to that. If you're not a Christian, accept this exchange today. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, working together with Him, then we appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? Many of, many of here, us may have done this. We got christened, we got baptized, we joined the Catholic Church, Baptist Church, Methodist Church. We have never been born again. Listen, don't receive it in vain. you got to receive it in reality. Look in verse 2. In a favorable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, the day of salvation is today. Listen, March the 25th, 2018 is the day for you to let God work that exchange in your life. Not tomorrow, not next month. You've got today. God says today is the day. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, listen to what it says. We are, we are the ambassadors for Christ, every Christian. As if God is making his appeal through us, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to plead with you. I beg you, if you're not a Christian, you come to Christ today. I've heard people say, well, I won't beg anybody. I will. God says to. 
God says, I will, I will clean your account and make my account your account. But you've got to come to Christ. I beg you this morning, do so if you never have. Let's pray. Christian, I'll talk to you more in a moment, but I just hope you're letting this sink from your head to your heart. If you're not a Christian and you're ready today to accept God's exchange offer, pray with me. Sincerely pray and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to repent. And I want your forgiveness. Jesus, I accept that you died for me. You arose for me. Come into my heart. And I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention. We're going to stand in a moment. You're a Christian this morning. Are you living up to the calling of what God's done for you? Maybe where you're standing, maybe you need to come this morning to the altar and pray. Just if nothing else, to thank God for what He's done for you. Maybe it's to repent and to to get lined up with God like you need to be. You're here today and you'd like to join our church. Listen, we would love for you to. You can do that after church. You can come when we stand. Come join us today. Maybe you just prayed and you just asked Christ to come in your life. Are you ready to do it? Listen, you got an opportunity now that you may never have again. you got it right now. I'll talk to you after church. If you're shy and don't want to walk down front. But maybe you're ready. You leave your seat today. Accept this wonderful exchange God has for you. Let's stand.